Did you know that according to the National Institutes of Health, nearly one in three of all adolescents ages 13 to 18 will experience an anxiety disorder? Those numbers have been rising steadily. Between 2007 and 2012, anxiety disorders in children and teens went up 20%. Add to that the rate of hospital admissions for suicidal teenagers doubling over the past decade has to leave us with many concerning questions about anxiety in teenagers. I'm Sharon Betters, and I am so glad you are joining me for this Help and Hope conversation produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today, I'm talking with Jessica Thompson. Jessica's name might be familiar to you because of the book she has written, including the best-selling book, Give Them Grace, which she co-authored with her mother, Elise Fitzpatrick. But Jessica is a prolific author on her own, and she has addressed some of these important issues about anxiety in our teens in her book, How to Help Your Teens with Anxiety. In this conversation, Jessica shares some of the reasons for the rising tide of anxiety, how to get your teen talking about anxiety, and some ways we can help teens deal with anxiety. Jessica, I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with our listeners, so welcome. Jessica, I first heard your name uh, when I saw the book, uh, Give Them Grace, that you co-authored with your mother, and it's amazing, and it's just an amazing book, and it's a best-selling book, too, and I know that that kind of launched you into writing other parenting books and on other topics, but one thing that maybe a lot of people don't know about you is the conversations that you have with your family on the front porch, the front porch. <laughs> so what, why don't you just tell us about that uh, and then tell us a little bit about your life right now. Okay. Well, let me first say this. My mom pretty much wrote, give them grace. She wrote the majority of it and then would come back to me and say, does this work in the middle of where you're at? is this totally just way too high up here instead of being down in the living room with the crayons where you are? So I always want people to know, I I really feel like I shouldn't take credit for that book. My brother and my mom and my dad and I, we have a podcast called Front Porch with the Fitzes. And I don't really know how to describe it. We've talked about it being like the hillbilly version of The View. Um, (laughs) Uh, The one thing I always tell people is like, before you listen in, like you have to give us three tries, promise to give us three tries. Cause the first try you're listening and you're like, I don't like this. This is really weird. I don't understand what's happening. And then the second try you're like, Oh, Oh, this might be my kind of weird. And then the third try your family. So uh, (laughs) the idea is, and what we hear a lot from people is just that it's like sitting down with your family at a dinner table where you talk about everything, what's going on in your life, maybe current news events, maybe silly news stories. And there's a lot of, I want to say like making fun of each other, laughing at each other, laughing with each other. I think it's good just because my mom has, you know, she's got like a pretty popular book career and speaking and it's good for people to normalize her and see that her family is just like everybody else's family. And that really is her heartbeat message. I'm just like you. We both are desperate for Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so to show people, oh, she's not joking. Like her family really is just like my family. So we do that. We, We talk about different random stuff. And then we 
do a, a segment where we recommend things. And then at the very end of the podcast, we leave you with a good word or a devotional to remind you that we are Christians. Because I think sometimes during the podcast, you're like, are they Christians or not? What's happening over there? <laughs> so we leave you with that. My life, I have um, a 20-year-old son, an 18-year-old son, and my daughter turned 16 this weekend. So yeah, two in college, one is still in high school. Uh, and I cannot wait for her to get her license. I will tell you that right now. <laughs> Um, I'm doing a lot of driving her around. The boys, I didn't feel like I had to drive them around as much, but I feel like I'm just constantly driving her around. So, Well, those, those drive-arounds, I'm sure that you would agree, are lots of um, moments, even though they're aggravating and irritating and disruptive in our lives, that they can be some of the best talking times. And so I think about you with uh, two college-age sons and a yeah. teenage daughter, and the title of your book that we're going to talk about is How to Help Your Teens with Anxiety. Yeah. And I feel like you have you probably have experienced a lot of that and you're fresh yeah. in it. And I think that's yeah. um, very helpful when someone isn't so not too far distant from the actual kind of a life crisis for some people uh, is how to help your teens with anxiety. So you research this topic a lot. You didn't just go with your own family. Right. What were some of the main things that cause anxiety that you discovered in teenagers, maybe in your own, but also beyond your own? I think there were some things that I was, I thought, of course, <laughs> it's kind of what everybody's sort of talking about. Um, you know, first of all, let's just say anxiety is on the rise. It has passed depression as the number one issue that teens, kids, even younger than teens go to see counseling for. It's an epidemic. People are calling it an epidemic because it really is everywhere. One third of all teenagers say they struggle with anxiety. Um, and I, I also just want to say this before we get into this. If your experience or your teen is experiencing life debilitating anxiety, they can't function. They can't get out of bed. They have a hard time getting out the door. If your teen is experiencing that, you need to speak, seek professional help. This book might help you, but you need to seek a professional, someone outside of just reading a book or even maybe outside of your pastor, which would be good to talk to, but you do need to get professional help for your teenager and not just think slapping a Bible verse on it will help. Again, you're going to, you know, you've read the book. Obviously my heart is that the Bible does help and what God's word says does help. But if they're experiencing life debilitating, something that stops their life, for longer than a week or two, you need to get professional help. So just as an aside, I wanted to say that. There are some things, some causes of anxiety that I think that everybody would say, social media, that's a really easy one. Everybody would look and say, yeah, I can see how social media would be a cause of anxiety in our teens and in our own lives. We compare, we look at what other people are doing, we get jealous, we don't know why we're not as good as they are. You know, this social media world where we all describe ourselves and portray ourselves as having it all together. And then you look at your own life and you think, what's wrong with me? So that's a very obvious thing that I think everybody would say, yeah, I can see how social media contributes to anxiety. The threat of terrorism or school shooters, that's another obvious one, I think, where you can say, yeah, since 9-11, we're living, all of our kids, if you have a teen now, they're all born post 9-11. They've only ever known a world where terrorism like that has happened on U.S. soil. They've only ever known a world where shootings are 
they're common almost. You know, it doesn't feel like we go by a month without some other big shooting happening. Our kids now live in a world where that's a reality where, you know, maybe for us it was something different, but it wasn't a school shooting. It wasn't going to school and you're afraid that someone's going to come in the doors. It wasn't going to a concert and being afraid that someone would come in. Those are both things that I think are, are obvious contributors to the rise of anxiety. One thing that I found surprising was the emphasis on getting into a good college and the standardization of school testing. Those two things uh, have contributed to anxiety in a way that I was surprised at. (laughs) I don't think I had ever really thought about the fact that when our kids now, and this is a newer practice, when our kids are in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, they're already being asked, what college do you want to go to? Where before it may have been, what do you want to do with your life, right? And now it is, what college are you going to get into? And in kindergarten classes, they have pendants from all different colleges up on the wall, which is not something that happened 20 years ago. And then you also have this rise in standardized testing. So with good intentions, I'm sure, the No Child Left Behind Act came into place. And with that came standardized testing. So we want all the schools operating at the same level. But what that did was it put a bunch of pressure on the teachers to have good test scores in public schools. And then what that did was, well, you know, it starts with administrators and then down to teachers and then down to the kids. Mm. And so now our kids have to go through standardized testings that don't have anything to do with their grades. And they go through a week in school, a couple different times during the school year where they have to do this testing that is a ton of pressure because your school wants to rank. Because when your school ranks, it means better things for your school. So I think the emphasis on education, the emphasis on college, the emphasis on it, you know, I think before it would have been like, oh, you're going to be a plumber. That's great. A mechanic. Cool. Go to trade school. Now it's like, are you good? What, what school are you getting into? I don't think that was the case 20 years ago. And statistically, it wasn't the case 20 years ago. And so because of this pressure to get into the right school, that has also caused a a severe increase in anxiety. If you talk to teens, that's one thing that's really on their mind. That's, you know, that's something when I uh, read your book and I read that, I thought I've never thought about that before. Probably our kids were at the beginning of that. And so they don't have the same, they didn't have the same kind of pressure, but I can see that. Yeah. When you were in kindergarten, I want to be a fireman this week and next week I want to be a truck driver and it it changes and it's okay because you're a kid. You know, nobody expects you to be working toward that one thing you say in kindergarten. But so with parents today, why is it hard sometimes for parents to acknowledge that their teens have ongoing anxiety that is affecting their view of life? What do you think that they're ignoring it on purpose or, you know, what, what do you think is the problem there? Well, I think there's a couple different types of parents, like parenting types. Some parents are sort of like ostrich head in the sand, right? And that means I'm not going to acknowledge anything that's going wrong in my kid's life. I'm just going to plow forward. We're going to act like everything's okay. And then there's this other type of parent who can sort of controls everything right? So I'm going to control where they go all the time. I'm going to look at every single grade they get. I'm going to ask them why they got a B or a C. I'm going to hover over everything. The reason for both of these parents is actually the same. 
And the, the reason that you either hide your head in the sand or you overparent or helicopter parent is because you're anxious yourself. You're anxious about how they're going to turn out. So you can either swing over here and ignore it, or you can swing over here and think you can control it. And I think there, a lot of the time, the reason that parents act like their kids aren't anxious is because they're afraid. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what to do to help them. Maybe parents experiencing their own anxiety. And so when they start to see that in their kids, they immediately just, I'm not going to deal with that. I, I can't deal with that because their own anxiety sort of makes them shut down. But it really is this matter of all of us want good things for our kids. All of us want our kids to have a bright future. And so when we see things in them that maybe will take away from that, or we think will hamper their chances at having a successful life, um, as parents, we don't know what to do with that. And so um, I think a lot of times parents don't want to look at it because they don't want to, they think, oh, that must be my fault. And they don't want to look at that either. Or they think that because my kid is anxious, it must say something about me as a, as a parent. Because my kid is anxious, I must not have done something right. And you know, we never want to confront our own brokenness. We never want to confront our own parenting failures. So I think that there's a few different reasons parents ignore it. They may be dealing with anxiety on their own and they can't add that into their life. So they pretend like it's not there. They may find their identity in their parenting. And so when they see something's wrong with their parenting or something might be wrong with their kids or different about their kids, they don't want to deal with that because it means that their own um, identity has now been rocked. So I think there's a few different reasons parents ignore uh, anxiety or, or they just think, get over it, you're fine, right? You don't have anything to worry about. You got a roof over your head. I, you know, I, I make you dinner. You, I drive you to school. What is your issue? Get over it. Not understanding that there actually might be a real mental illness going on in your kid's life, or there might actually be stressors in your kid's life that you don't even know about. And so I think uh, telling your kid, just get over it, that's never helped anybody. <laughs> it feels like an easy way out, but it's not a helpful one. You mentioned uh, helicopter parenting, and we've yeah. thought about that, you know, that the parent who has to be involved in every minute of their child's life. And, and I think that the ones who are, they feel like this is the way you're supposed to parent. You're supposed yeah. to care about your child. You're supposed to make sure that they're never hurt, that they're never mistreated, that they always, you know, it's a trophy for everybody kind mm -hmm. of thing, making mm -hmm. sure that everything is fair uh, from parent's perspective. But what what is deeper? What do you think goes deeper than just the parent demonstrating what they believe is love for that child? Yeah. Well, I think, again, it goes back to anxiety in the parent's life, wanting to control everything that's going on, wanting to create this fake environment for their child where nothing ever goes wrong. That's not the world we live in. The world we live in is full of brokenness, filled with sinners. <laughs> it's filled with your own sin. It's filled with your kid's sin. The world we live in is not some fairy tale utopia where your kids' feelings never get hurt. And when we helicopter parent, when we try to save them from every single hurt, when we try to control every situation, my kid's not getting enough playing time on his t-ball team, he's going to feel bad about himself, so I'm going to go talk to the coach. Um, my, my kid doesn't get an A, even though I think that paper was really great. I actually wrote it myself, so of course it's great. <laughs> When we try to control every single thing that's happening in our kid's life, 
what we're doing is taking away from them the ability to learn how to walk through difficult situations. So the very thing that we're trying to protect them from, anxiety, hurt feelings, any of those things, is the thing that we're actually foisting onto them. It's the thing we're pushing them into. Because when they don't know how to deal with not being picked first, when they don't know how to deal with not being invited to the party, then they're not going to know how to deal with not getting into the college that they want to get into. They're not going to know how to deal with not getting the promotion that they wanted. See, life is full of hurts and brokenness. And when we're trying to control the environment so much so that our kids never have to experience anything painful, we're actually taking away from them that we're stunting their growth in how to grow, like growing emotionally. How do I deal with setbacks? How do I deal with disappointments? And parents are doing this all across the board. And I, I get it. Like, I don't want someone to, when I hear that someone has been mean to my daughter at school, my mom instinct is to go and very gently talk to that child. No, <laughs> my instinct is to go and tell that kid, stop it. What do you think you're doing? Right? My instinct is that mama bear instinct that rises up. And, and while there might be times and situations where that's appropriate, if your kid is being bullied to an extent that is making them not want to go to school, I mean, there, there are things that need to be talked to. You do need to talk to school administrators or to someone in your church if their kid is unkind or whatever. There are probably are times you need to talk to people. I think that the probably there are the majority of the times is it would be better for you to teach your kid how to walk through that because they will experience it their whole life. I mean, I still experience people being unkind to me. I'm sure you do too. And um, the better thing would be for me to learn how to walk through that without falling into anxiety or falling into depression or without someone always taking up my cause for me. Mm -hmm. So parents need to ask themselves, is this, a, is this an opportunity where I should go talk to whoever's in charge over here? Or is this an opportunity for me to step back and teach my child how to walk through this situation? You know, it might be both, and that's great too. But I think our instinct is, I just want to go fix it all so they don't ever experience pain. And that's not good for them at all. You're actually pushing them into pain for their future, you know, because they won't know how to deal with their wife or their spouse or significant other doing something they don't like. They won't know how to deal with their boss telling them, um, you did this wrong. <laughs> uh, so preparing them for life instead of like saving this precious time where nothing bad ever happens to them. Uh, we need to look at that whole picture and decide what's better for them in the moment. I remember when our kids were little, one of our friends, I mean, really good friends, they were, I would consider them and they would probably say, yes, they were helicopter parents. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget it was a church organization and they always had this race car contest. I can't remember what it's called, but probably every kid has done it where you're supposed to paint your own car and you yeah. design it and you put weight yeah. in and all that. And I don't think I was a helicopter parent. I might've yeah. been the other extreme at times, yeah. but I didn't worry about it. I thought if they don't do it, they don't get it done, you know, yeah. and the night comes and go get it. And so it's on you. And so, of course, they never had a winning car and they always looked like they just slapped a coat of paint on it. And then here comes their dear friend who, I mean, it's a race car, top yeah. of the line, going to win every time. And I admit, I felt guilty about yeah. that. You know, I thought yeah. I wasn't a good parent. I, and then doing their homework for them. You, you yeah. think doing it with them, but in, in reality, you know the reports that, you know, right. when you go and see all the displays, you think, uh-huh, yeah, right. 
that first grader did not do this for sure. Yeah. Now my first grader, it looks like a first grader did it. So Jessica, that, I think that's a struggle for me personally. Yeah. I'm 71. I have uh, four children, 14 grandchildren. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking back to how we raised our kids. And I thought, this is such a battle to know yeah. how do you teach your children a good work ethic without burdening them with your own personal need to be a right. parent? Right. How do you do it? And, and can you even do it so that you don't feel guilty all the time? If there's a way to do it without questioning yourself constantly, I haven't found it. <laughs> I really do think that's part of parenting. I think parenting is this constant, am I making the right decisions? What's going on here, right? Uh, Paul Miller said that he found that he did his best parenting by prayer. And I think it's this constant like, oh, I'm going to step back and pray about this. I'm going to step back and not try to control this situation. And I think a lot of us, probably all, um, most of us really find our identity in our parenting. If I'm if I have good kids, if I have a son that scores the touchdown, if I have a daughter that looks pretty, which is ridiculous, I get it. But it's the way our hearts operate. If I have a daughter who gets straight A's, if I have a son who leads a young life group, um, any of these things, we find our identity in any of them. If I have these list of things, if my kids turn out this way, then um, it somehow validates who I am as a person. I find my righteousness in how my kids turn out. My okayness with God and with others comes from how my kids turn out. And we all do it. We all find our identity, our righteousness, our okayness in, in the works of our children. And we end up using them instead of loving them. And our kids can't bear the weight of that responsibility. They can't bear the weight of our identity. And so what we're doing when we are constantly like, I got to make sure the car's just right. I got to look over their homework and make sure that's just right. I'm going to get them the best lessons available. And if they fail at baseball or piano or whatever it is, I'm going to let them know how much money I spent on it, how much that cost me, not just monetarily, but how much that cost me because I have to work hard for it. I'm going to lay all this guilt on them to somehow be better. Because when they're better, I feel better about myself. When they're better, I think I'm killing it as a parent. And I think the answer to that, of course, is that we find our identity in what Christ has done for us. That we don't find our identity in our kids' accomplishments. We find our identity in the work, the the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that he looks at us, God looks at us, and because we're in Christ, he says, you're my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. And, and so as we take that identity and we, we remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, we're forgiven. Every parenting failure is forgiven. Every parenting failure, every time you sinned against your kids, as far as God is concerned, it's forgiven. You may need to ask your kids for forgiveness, first things that you've done, and I would encourage you to do that. But as far as God's concerned, you stand completely righteous. You stand completely forgiven before him. And as you operate out of that, that overwhelming sense of welcome and belovedness, you're able to love your kids in a different way. You're able to love them without needing them to build your identity. If you're looking for your kids to build your identity, you're going to feel either anxious and depressed if your kids aren't doing well. 
or you're going to feel proud and self-righteous if they are. And neither one of those (laughs) is a good place to be. The best place to be is reminded daily, my identity is in Christ. I'm loved, I'm forgiven. And because of that, I can love my kids without needing anything from them to build my identity. Can't love your kids and use them at the same time. And when you do, you'll end up anxious yourself and you'll make them more anxious. So I think as far as feeling guilty as a parent, we all do. And again, there might be times where you need to go to your kids and ask for forgiveness. But I think a lot of it is taking that to God and just saying, help me to know here what's appropriate to feel guilty about. Because there are things that we should think, I should change that part of my parenting, screaming at them every day, not good. And there are other things that we feel guilty about, maybe like not making the best car, that we just think in in eternity, that doesn't really matter. You know, and so I think taking those requests, taking taking those thoughts to God and, and letting him move in your heart in such a way that you understand what to do with all of them. Everything that you said, I appreciate so much. I'm remembering I'm a pastor's wife and yeah. so raising TKs. Bless you and bless them. I <laughs> uh, you know. And our boys especially were ornery. I mean, they were yeah. ornery and I'd have to take them out of church and yeah. apply discipline and all of that. And I have to say, I felt totally humiliated when they would misbehave. Yeah. And uh, I was talking to another pastor's wife. She's older than me and I used to babysit her kids. So I know they were a handful too. And I, I said, do you have any regrets? And she said, yes, I was too focused on behavior and not enough yeah. on grace. Yeah. And if I could do it over again, I would give them grace and, yeah. and give myself grace. Yes. But I, I think that, you know, you said a couple times, it's daily. It's, yeah. it's not a one and done thing. And, oh, it's not. And so even, I think even, you know, to try to give a little bit of encouragement to parents who are struggling, even those hard places yeah. are opportunities to really run to the cross. And Absolutely. I can't do this. I, I don't know how to do it. I can't do it. You've got you've to carry me through this. And that, when that heart is going on in your own, if that's going on in your own heart, that it's going to flow out to mm-hmm. your children. But mm-hmm. it may not be coming a gush from your heart. It may just be a trickle as yeah. you're growing yourself, growing right. in grace, giving yourself grace. You also said, um, Paul Miller, who's one of my favorite authors, and just as a plug, we interviewed he and his wife uh, about raising their daughter who has uh, autism, but you can check out markinc.org and you can find a wonderful conversation with them. But the thing that I took away from his book on prayer, which I absolutely loved, was um, when you pray, um, you turn from worry to watching. And in this season of life where friends of mine call the duct tape season of life where you put duct tape across your mouth and you don't say a word uh, <laughs> to your adult children and all of that. Yeah, yeah. There's one who wants us to take the duct tape off and to mm-hmm. speak to him all the time. And that's the Lord. And then to watch and watch mm-hmm. the opportunities that, co- that come in a way that you never expected. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think if when you're praying for your child that way, and okay, they have a meltdown or they're miserable in the car ride home. Opportunity for what you just said to say, oh, Lord, I prayed for him this morning. Okay, this is my moment. How yeah. do you handle it? Yeah. But it, it is a marathon. It is. It is. Tough. Absolutely. And I, like you, you were saying, it's, it's like every day and it's multiple times a day, right? It's yes. this constant reminding yourself, I'm not in control, but there is one who is and he cares deeply for me. Yes. And he cares deeply for my kids. 
And so because of that, I can rest in, in his goodness, in his care for me. And I think that that is this constant reminder. And then the other side of that is reminding yourself of that all, like don't beat yourself up for the times that you don't do that. That doesn't change you or help you. That just makes you fall deeper into condemnation. But reminding yourself that in those moments you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you have Jesus Christ's perfect record of always trusting the Father, which is an amazing, crazy thought. But we're justified, and that's what that means. Mm -hmm. And so I think reminding yourself of your justification, reminding yourself of forgiveness, that's what gives you the courage to try again. Well, talking about trying again, what are some of the ways that parents can create a safe environment for their kids to so that and then so that parents can get behind the scenes? Because let's face it, teenagers are not always forthcoming with going on in their hearts, and they may not even know how to speak it. I mean, sometimes you were talking about social media earlier and I thought I struggle with the very same thing. Oh, at a party. They didn't invite me. Yeah. Wait, their kid did this. What? Hold on. How about yeah. Me? Yeah. Uh, But I may not even know that's why I'm feeling depressed yeah. or sad. Uh, I have to go back and say, okay, this is ridiculous. You know, go yeah. back. How do you get your kids to reveal that to you? How do you get them to talk and maybe some practical questions yeah. uh, to ask. Well, I think, first of all, one thing that I always pray when uh, my friend always what told me that this was her prayer and I've adopted it as my own. And the prayer is this, Lord, um, reveal to me all the things in my kids' lives that I need to know. Reveal it to me somehow. And then for the things that I don't necessarily need to know, give me the grace to trust you in them. And so that prayer, the sort of tension in that prayer, which is, if I am needing to know it, you put a thought in my mind right now to go pick up their phone and see what they're looking at or whatever it is. But if there are things that they just are going to struggle through, help me to trust you. And I think that that's a very important for prayer for, for parents to be praying. Um, but I think a way to get your kids to open up to you is to create an atmosphere of grace in your home where your kids don't grow up thinking that you have it all together. So when you were talking about struggling with social media, telling your kids that, saying to them, you know what? Uh, I don't know how kids, you guys do it these days. I, I, don't, I don't know how you live with the constant social media pressure. And just talking about your own life. I know in my life, when I see that my friends have gone to a party or I see they're out to the movies or I see they're doing whatever and I'm not invited, I feel horrible. You know. And then, so confessing that to them and then maybe in that saying to them, does it bother you? Do you struggle with the same thing? And maybe even asking them, what do you do when you struggle that? Like, help me to know how to handle this. Opening that up. But I think it's this atmosphere of grace, this atmosphere of, of telling your kids, I know I don't have it all together. It's starting with confessing your own sins to your kids. And obviously with wisdom, <laughs> right? You don't confess to your kids like, I wish you were never born. That's not a good thing to confess. <laughs> But things that would be appropriate to confess, confessing your own anger, confessing your own struggles that they may be able to relate to. You know, when a kid eats a purple popsicle and they've got like purple on their mouth and their teeth and their tongue and you ask them, did you eat a purple popsicle? And the kid's like, no, you know, that's how you are when you don't confess your sins to your kids, right? So when you're angry with them and you don't ask for forgiveness, when they see you worrying about something, and you're not honest about it. So like if people are coming over for dinner 
and you're in a rage clean trying to get everything perfect and they're like, are you okay? And you're like, I'm fine, right? (laughs) You have purple popsicle all over your face. The better thing there would be for you to say, "Um, you know what? I am really struggling right now. I'm feeling anxious. I am angry. I, whatever it is, I want to impress these people. When we have those kinds of conversations with our kids, they're going to feel free to have those conversations with us because they they don't think that you think you have it all together. Um, They understand that you're a sinner in need of a savior, just like they are. And, you know, constantly reminding your kids, baby, you need Jesus and I do too. We need Jesus. Creating an atmosphere of that, I think, is what leads your kids to be able to talk to you. But again, there are going to be parents who are listening to this whose kids won't talk to them. And they may have done everything right. They may have tried to create an atmosphere of grace, but their kids just don't have that heart to talk to them. And so in those moments, your job is to pray that God takes care of them. Your job is to continue asking, but not trying because you won't be able to, (laughs) not trying to make them talk to you. So I think that sort of create an atmosphere, but trust God and know that if your kids don't talk to you, you have a heavenly advocate that you can talk to that is far more powerful than you are anyway. One of the things that I'm always worried about with our grandkids, and I do talk to them about it, is what they're seeing on social media. Mm-hmm. What videos are they watching? Who's influencing them? What are yeah. the influences there? And actually, I think that's probably a place where you try to figure out what, what they're watching. And, yeah. um, and one of the things that I've done with our kids, not successfully our grandkids, is let me see. Show me what you're laughing yes. about. You know, what's yes. going on here? Um, yes. What are you watching? But I love the way that you say, if you can't get them to reveal those things, the Lord can protect them or he yeah. can he'll show you at the right time, right right moment. And and it may be that they're going to go through a lot of pain. They're going to make very poor decisions and they're going to go through a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. So Jessica, as we're wrapping up, I think about the parents who they're hearing everything you're saying, but they're saying, okay, first of all, I've blown it, but I get what you're saying. Okay, I'm going to go to the Lord with all this, but I have a reason to be fearful Mm -hmm. myself. I have a reason to be anxious. And I think about my reason I think about them is because in our own family, our youngest child, our 16-year-old son, Mark, and his friend, Kelly, were in a fatal car accident. That was 25 years ago, but it's still, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard to talk about. But because of that, the fear of, for our other children was just yeah. raging bull. And, of course. And so there may be a parent who's saying, my child is so um, addicted to because, and there's, there's little I can do. Of course, I'm anxious. Of course, I'm going through all that. Would you speak to that person? Um, And just in it's just a moment of maybe to stop the hemorrhaging for just a moment with some words of comfort. Yeah. I mean, where else are we going to find words of comfort, but um, from the Bible. And so first Peter, Five, six, and seven says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So parents that are feeling anxious and really feel like, I have good reason to feel anxious. You probably do. We all do, really. He is not asking you to ignore your anxiety. He's not asking you to act like it's no big deal. What he's asking you to do is for you to cast that anxiety on him because he does 
care for you. And I think the beginning of that verse talks or the, the first verse talks about like humbling yourself, knowing that you can't control it, even if you tried. Humble yourself under his mighty hand and then cast all of your anxieties on him. He cares for you. And although there may have been circumstances that you have gone through that feels like he doesn't care for you, it feels like he's forgotten you. It feels like maybe even he's angry at you. (laughs) Otherwise, how could he let this happen? In these verses, he's telling you right here, no, sweetie, I care for you. Come to me with your anxieties. Child, come to me with your anxieties. Cast them all on me and let me care for you. So that would be my word of encouragement to parents. He sees you. He is the God who sees. He is the God who says that he is close to the brokenhearted. He is not asking you to ignore your pain. He's not asking you to ignore your anxiety. He's not telling you that it's stupid, that you should just get over it. What he's asking you to do is come to him. And that would be my encouragement. Go to him. He cares for you. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us your time and for sharing your heart and your passion for offering help and hope to parents for those crazy teen years. But really, it's the principles apply no matter what season of life you're in. I'm Sharon Batters, and I've been talking with Jessica Thompson. Jessica is the author of How to Help Your Teens with Anxiety, but she has other books that she's written and We're going to put all that information on our website at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you're going to find a lot of help and hope resources that are free, conversations with others who have experienced really excruciating, painful life crises that sometimes are experienced in isolation and people don't know how to help. They don't know what to say. And so each story is designed to offer help and hope to you in your own walk of life. And that's at markinc.org. So thank you so much for listening. Again, I've been talking with Jessica Thompson and I will have all of her information on our website. Uh, If you have enjoyed this conversation, if it has encouraged you in any way, please let us know. Stop by our website and leave us a note. Thank you so much for listening.